You are tuned to Community Radio, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's Tuesday, March 9th, 2021. I'm Claudio Mendoza, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. Tonight, following NPR News headlines and the California Report, we'll look at regional headlines and the weather. Then, Charlotte Peterson talks with Scott Lay, the Nevada County Superintendent of Schools, about students heading back to their classrooms. We'll close tonight's newscast with a commentary from Mark Cunaberti about debt. How much is too much? For their support, we thank Ben Franklin Crafts, celebrating National Craft Month by offering classes, demonstrations, and more. For arts and crafts, home decor, school projects, knitting, and more. Information about National Craft Month celebration is online at benfranklin-crafts.com. And Nevada County Public Health, partnering with local health care providers to distribute COVID-19 vaccines to Nevada County residents. Information, mynevadacounty.com slash coronavirus slash vaccine or 833 833- Dial 211. Here are today's NPR news headlines. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. The Supreme Court is dismissing a case over the legality of the so called public charge rule at the request of the Biden administration. NPR's Joel Rose reports the administration is expected to drop the controversial immigration policy. The Trump administration's public charge rule made it harder for immigrants to get green cards if they were considered likely to use a wide range of government benefits, including food stamps and subsidized health insurance. But immigrant advocates said the rule went far beyond what Congress intended and was essentially a wealth test. Several lower courts agreed, finding the rule likely violated federal law. The Supreme Court agreed to hear an appeal filed by the Trump administration, but President Joe Biden's administration asked the high court to dismiss the case, clearing the way for his administration to drop the rule altogether. Joel Rose, NPR News. Texas Governor Greg Abbott visited the state's border region to address the rising number of migrants arriving there and federal immigration policies. Maria Mendez with Texas Public Radio has that story. Abbott spoke after being briefed by Border Patrol and law enforcement in the Rio Grande Valley, a major entry point for migrants. He said he is surging state law enforcement and National Guard resources to protect Texans. We will work to step up and try to fill the gap that the federal government is leaving open by making sure that we deploy every resource, whether it be Texas Department of Public Safety, National Guard, whatever we need to do, Texas is going to fight for the safety and security of our state. Abbott also stressed that coronavirus testing of migrants and vaccinations of Border Patrol are federal responsibilities that must be addressed by the Biden administration. I'm Maria Mendez in Laredo. Arkansas's governor has signed legislation into law that would ban virtually all abortions in that state. Those expected opponents will challenge the sweeping measure before it takes effect later this year. Measure signed today by Republican Governor Asa Hutchinson would allow abortion in the state only to save the life of the mother. It does not include exceptions for rape or incest. Arkansas now one of at least 14 states where legislators proposed outright abortion bans. Stocks closed higher today with technology shares enjoying some of the biggest gains. NPR's Scott Horsley has more. 
The tech-heavy Nasdaq enjoyed a strong rebound, jumping more than 3.5% after being down more than 10% on Monday from its recent highs. The broader S&P 500 index also climbed 1 and 4 tenths percent. The Dow was in record territory for much of the day, but the blue-chip rally fizzled in late afternoon, and the Dow closed up just one-tenth of 1%. Tech stocks, which have taken a beating in recent days, began to look like bargains to some investors who snapped up the discounted shares. Microsoft rose nearly 3 percent, Amazon climbed almost 4 percent, and Tesla stock jumped nearly 20 percent. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The Nasdaq was up 464 points. This is NPR. In Brazil, the former president known as Lula may be eligible to run again after a judge overturned his corruption sentences. Catherine Osborne has more. A top judge ruled the cases against Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva were tried in the wrong court. He'd been sentenced to nearly 13 years in prison for receiving an apartment as a bribe from a construction company. Lula denies any wrongdoing. A new trial could take years, opening a window for Lula to run again in next year's election. He's currently more popular than President Jair Bolsonaro. Reporter Catherine Osborne. Pandemic sent U.S. oil production down sharply last year. A federal agency says it was the biggest one-year drop in crude production ever recorded. NPR's Camila Dominowski explains it was triggered by a temporary drop in demand. The Energy Information Administration says U.S. oil production dropped by 8% or close to a million barrels per day. That's the sharpest decline in all the decades the EIA has tracked production. It's not just the U.S. World oil production dropped last year as pandemic lockdowns caused travel to plummet, causing demand for gasoline and jet fuel to disappear. This decrease was never going to be permanent. Oil production is already on the upswing as demand and prices rise. But with investors worried about oil's profitability and the whole planet worried about how to halt climate change, the long-term future of the commodity is in question. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. Giant multinational consumer goods company Unilever says it's changing the way it advertises. The company saying it will no longer use the word normal in ads for beauty and personal care products. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. The school reopening bill signed by Governor Gavin Newsom last week sends money for districts to help them restart classroom learning. But it doesn't force schools to reopen. Some critics of the legislation say the state should abandon its hands-off approach of local control and education and use a heavier hand to get kids back in the classrooms. With more, here's KQED politics reporter Guy Marzarotti. If former state Senator Gloria Romero has learned anything in her decades of work on school issues, it's that education is a Byzantine labyrinth in California. It makes no sense. You start with thousands of school districts across the state. Each one has its own, typically locally elected board. They negotiate with local unions. Bus drivers, custodians, teachers. More guidance comes from the county office of education. Then you've got what I always call the great school board in the sky. That's the state board of education. And who the hell knows what they do? The governor appoints that board, but voters choose the superintendent of public instruction, or SPI. A lot of people have said, even me who once ran for SPI, eliminate that position. 
add on the Senate and Assembly Education Committees, and you can understand why parents frustrated with school closures might wonder where exactly to point the finger. Romero, a vocal charter school advocate in L.A., has an answer. Despite how convoluted that is, the governor has the bully pulpit. Critics of the school deal say Newsom should have used executive power to suspend bargaining with unions and order teachers back to class. Pat Riley is a Democratic consultant and parent advocate with Open Schools CA. Having individual school districts try to negotiate with their labor partners, it's like setting off a bunch of brush fires across the state. So why did the idea of local control, a popular refrain in Sacramento, carry the day in the legislature? Santa Cruz Democratic Senator John Laird says creating requirements to fit massive urban districts and small rural communities would just slow down the process. There is a uniform standard in this bill. It's flexibility so that the over 1,000 districts in California can open in the way that works for them. And it's not just Democrats. Republicans generally prefer local decision-making, and most GOP legislators voted for the bill. I think it's crucial. I I think it's it's essential that we have local control. That's Republican Senator Rosa Licio Choa Bo from San Bernardino. She tells constituents wondering who's in charge of school decisions. You are. You are ultimately in control of your schools. Ochoa Bo, a former school board member in Yucaipa, says change in school policy should be driven by voters, not state mandates. If you're not happy, then lo and behold, go ahead and select and find candidates that reflect your values and your vision of education and get them elected. It's safe to say that with the opening decision on their plate, often overlooked school board elections might get more attention next time around. For the California Report, I'm Guy Marzarati. And in more school news, the state has rejected applications from three school districts in San Diego County that were looking to open middle and high schools. The district submitted their applications, even though the county hasn't reached the less restrictive red tier, which is a requirement for opening middle and high schools. The districts tell the San Diego Union Tribune they feel their applications were denied arbitrarily, as the reasons given are not part of the guidance from the state when it comes to reopening schools. They've tried to appeal, but have been told by state officials that the decision is final. Governor Gavin Newsom, meanwhile, was in the Central Valley yesterday talking about vaccine distribution. KQED's Alex Hall has more. It's been a week since California started setting aside 10% of its vaccine supply for K-12 school staff and child care workers, with a focus on communities hit hardest by the pandemic. At a press conference in early March, an unincorporated community in Tulare County, Newsom said over 200,000 have been vaccinated, three times the state's goal. Meantime, Governor Newsom said plans for a mass vaccination site he promised was coming to the Central Valley are stalled. But he said his office is still trying. Other states, I'll be honest with you, were a little upset that California was the first to get not one, but two large-scale vaccination sites. And until the other states start to get more equitably their vaccination sites, we're struggling to get that third site. Central Valley Congressman Josh Harder responded to the governor's comments, calling for clarity on when and if a mass vaccination site will be coming to the region. In a statement, Harder said California is more than just L.A. and the Bay Area, and it's time that resources be sent to the hardest hit communities instead of the wealthiest 
and the most politically connected ones. For the California Report, I'm Alex Hall in Fresno. Support for the California Report comes from the law firm Perkins Coie, a trusted legal advisor to innovative companies and industry leaders throughout California and the world. Learn more at PerkinsCOIE.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone everywhere. And hint, fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors, like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. In Kern County, the Board of Supervisors unanimously passed a controversial ordinance last night allowing the addition of 40,000 oil and gas wells over the next 15 years in the county. But before they voted, the supervisors heard an earful at eight hours of public comments. Mari Bolaños with Valley Public Radio has more. The majority of comments were against the ordinance. Resident Daniel Rez said he'd read dozens of studies about the harmful effects of oil and gas drilling on people living nearby. My wife is pregnant, and as an expectant parent, I worry about increased oil and gas extraction in my community. I worry about what that might do to our child, both before and after they're born. But county officials argued the ordinance provides environmental mitigation that did not previously exist. Resident Danny Gracia said he's made a good career in the oil industry. My intention is coming into the oil field to provide a good life for my families, like my brothers and friends. I did more than that. I made a career out of it. I gave my family more than I ever imagined. The ordinance requires local oversight of oil and gas drilling permits in the county, in addition to permits from the California Geologic Energy Management Division. For the California Report, I'm Mari Bolaños. And that is the California Report for today, Tuesday, March 9th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announced yesterday that fully vaccinated Americans can gather with other vaccinated people indoors without wearing a mask or social distancing. The guidance comes as 31 million Americans, about 9%, have been fully vaccinated against COVID-19. CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky said, quote, With more and more people vaccinated each day, we are starting to turn a corner. Close quote. A person is considered fully vaccinated two weeks after receiving the last required dose of vaccine. The CDC guidance did not speak to people who may have gained some level of immunity from being infected and recovering from the coronavirus. Today, the Nevada County Board of Supervisors heard public commentary on a resolution supporting reopening Nevada County safely in response to the COVID-19 pandemic in coordination with Nevada County's public health authorities. After many hours of public commentary, including more than 700 letters and emails, the resolution was tabled. Taking a look at the weather for tonight and tomorrow, in Nevada City and Grass Valley, tonight, rain and snow showers becoming all snow after 4 a.m. Some thunder is also possible. The low will be around 32 degrees. Tomorrow, snow showers before 10 a.m., then rain and snow showers with a high near 42. In Truckee and the Lake Tahoe region, tonight, snow showers with a low around 18 degrees. Tomorrow's high will be near 32 with more snow showers, mainly before 4 p.m., 
some thunder is also possible. A winter weather advisory remains in effect for the area until 7 p.m. Wednesday evening. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight, showers likely and possibly a thunderstorm. Some of the storms could produce small hail. Tonight's low will be around 44 degrees. Tomorrow, a chance of showers before 10 a.m., then showers likely and possibly thunderstorms between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. Then it'll be mostly cloudy with a high near 54. Next, Charlotte Peterson talks to Scott Lay, the Nevada County Superintendent of Schools, about students heading back into the classrooms. I'm speaking with Nevada County Superintendent of Schools, Scott Lay. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us for a bit today, Scott. Absolutely happy to, Charlotte. So let's jump right in today and talk a little bit about students heading back into the classroom. Absolutely. Well, in in my opinion, you know, the... uh, and I think in parents and students' opinions as well. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 improving. I think we're further along than a lot of uh, the counties in California. We have got eight of our nine school districts that are now doing in-person learning, um, and two of our five charter schools. Uh, the remaining three charter schools and one school district are looking at uh, bringing kids back for in-person learning. Uh, by spring break, which is the first week of April. So that's exciting. So we should have uh, all our schools open to in-person learning. Uh, the schools that are in currently in-person learning are looking at ways to expand that, uh, to have students uh, attending uh, for more minutes during the day or adding an extra day. So that's also very exciting uh, for the kids and for, uh, for parents, as I mentioned, and the teachers. They want the kids back more as well. Let me clarify, are students, are any students in class um, full-time, or is it still kind of uh, a hybrid? No, there is nobody in Nevada County right now in uh, a model that is full-time. What we're there in right now is anywhere from 40 to 60 percent. It depends on the district or the charter school and how they've configured it. Each district and charter school has really worked with their local population, the community, to figure out what works best. Um, and so it's a different model, but what we're looking at is some uh, districts are looking at going five days a week, um, and it would come to about 80% of, uh, of a normal school year will be in-person learning, which is really exciting. That is very exciting yeah. indeed. Great. Oh, so I was just going to say, well, the issue is because a lot of people say, you know, why don't you just go all the way? One of the issues that schools are still facing is the challenge of keeping kids four to six feet apart. The health department, uh, California Department of Public Health, did say, you know, they like six, but if uh, you can do four, four is okay. And so, and, and it's interesting, the four feet is from the middle of the seat to the middle of the next seat. So that's how they measure four feet. Um, and so each of our classrooms in Nevada County, they're different sizes. There's no standard size up here. And so each school and charter is measuring their classrooms uh, and if they can't go full-time in some cases, it's because they simply just don't have the space to bring kids back under the current guidelines that our public health department has. So that's the reason it's not as simple as just saying we're going to open full-time five days a week. And then the other issue would be we do have a, a, a percent of our 
students, and that that maybe is an average of 20% in all our districts and charter schools, whose parents don't want them to come back yet, that they don't feel it's safe. And so we need to honor that and, and not disrupt their learning. So schools have got to figure out you know, how to meet both those needs. Well, thank you for that clarification, Scott. So what are we looking at for next year? So next year, is, um, the goal is five days a week with as much normality as we can. You know, and this, that all depends on where we are with this pandemic. But I know once we got the uh, educational staff vaccinated, the fear, uh, you know, that, that, that was out there started to really subside. I noticed it. It was almost like a, a sigh of relief. And so we'll, we'll be looking at that. Um, that is the plan. That's everybody's number one priority. They do know they will have a percent, and we don't know what that is of students, you know, who still may not be coming back because their parents don't feel safe. So they need to figure out how to accommodate that. You know, at this point, we're probably looking at masks and some type of physical distancing going on with our increased cleaning, but we don't know really where that will be. Uh, much like the entire past year, you know, it, it kind of ebbs and flows, and so. Uh, we're currently working with all the districts and charter schools to develop those plans uh, for next year, um, as well as really working hard on how do we mitigate learning loss and how schools are dealing with that. Um, we had a, a major education package just passed, that's AB 86, uh, which stands for Assembly Bill 86, and it is going to uh, definitely happen because it uh, – it gives the schools an additional $2 billion this year, starting April 1st, um, to, for schools that have in-person learning. They have to have in-person learning, not distance, but, and it can be in a hybrid like we have up here. Um, and then a package of $4.6 billion to start for the summer that runs through next school year, and that's to help potentially hiring additional staff, um, increased learning times, maybe some summer sessions, maybe intercessions, um, extended day. There's a lot of options on the table. And so that plan is going to be worked out, discussed with the community to see what, again, meets the community needs the best. So that's exciting. So we know there's the need, and now uh, it's great that the legislature and the governor recognize that and come up with a plan um, that to help us and help the students achieve that goal. Well, that is a lot of good news so far. Scott, thanks for joining me today, and we will chat again when you have more updates. That sounds great, Charlotte. I've been chatting with Scott Lay, Nevada County Superintendent of Schools. For KBMR, I'm Charlotte Peterson. Next up, Mark Cunaberti with a commentary. Welcome to another edition of Your Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. In 2020, multiple COVID stimulus and relief packages flowed out of Washington. Some programs you have heard about and possibly benefited from. But much more money went to payments which did not go to consumers and instead assisted the financial conduits of the economy. Some might rush to call those conduits Wall Street, but that is a topic covered in previous Money Matter radio shows. With another $1.5 trillion package about to be approved, any talk of excessive spending is relegated to limiting package amounts rather than 
killing these programs altogether. With that in mind, little concern seems to exist in Washington or in the news media as to the dangers of massive government spending. To this analyst, the silence is deafening. Not to be a killjoy or to seem uncompassionate, but bringing up the fact that massive government expenditures has its dangers is my job. So here goes. Since the government gets its money from either taxing it, borrowing it, or creating it out of thin air, there is historical precedent as to the hazards of excessive government spending. The word excessive is the key, and when that spending becomes excessive is a topic of debate. A common metric for measuring just how much is too much when discussing government spending is public debt compared to gross domestic product. Gross domestic product is the total amount of money and monetary transactions for all goods and services within a country. It was once thought that a debt-to-GDP ratio exceeding about 90% meant a serious risk of an eventual sovereign default, which is when a country is unable to meet its debt obligations. Needless to say, a sovereign default is about as serious as it gets when it comes to a negative economic event. Even a default from a relatively small country can cause serious economic damage to the global economy. The bigger the country, the more severe the damage. The event can cause worldwide financial disruptions at minimum, and the risk of a total global financial implosion in the worst case, think 2008 and 2009. With modern central banking having more and more influence over global financial mechanisms, the ratio metrics have been repeatedly tested, and the theory of how much debt is too much debt is constantly being revised upward. The debt limit has been considered to be even higher during the last few decades, as more countries went further and further into debt, yet failed to succumb to it. Some argue central bank bailouts have mitigated the risk, while others claim bailouts have only postponed the day of reckoning. The limits continue to be tested, and COVID-19 has only pushed debt levels even higher. Japan is an egregious example of pushing the envelope, with current public debt levels surpassing 230% at the conclusion of the fourth quarter of 2019. U.S. public debt-to-GDP ratio was over 106%. Now it's around 120%, albeit far below Japan's debt-to-GDP ratio. It is still argued to be excessive when compared to initial theoretical levels. As the upper limits are tested, it is important to remember a failure of the GDP debt ratio means a sovereign default. The ramifications being so dire of that, it would be best not to find out what that limit is by exceeding it. At that point, it would be too late. Much like loading a bridge with more and more weight to see how much it would take to cause its collapse, the reality of that is the bridge's failure would destroy the bridge, the entire structure, and everything on and under it. Extrapolating that into the discussion of what is toxic GDP debt levels, the answer should be arrived upon by theory, an ongoing study, and not by real-world experimentation. To instead keep adding more and more debt until something breaks, giving the consequences which could be regional at best and global at worst, is to tempt a 2008 and 2009 financial implosion, which almost wrecked the entire global financial system. Due to ever-increasing global debt levels, however, theory suggests that each subsequent debt failure event is larger than the one that preceded it. 
And that, dear listener, means a financial event, if it happens, would be unparalleled in its destruction. That does it for today's Money Matters. This is not meant as investment advice. Consult a qualified financial professional before making any investment decisions. The opinions expressed here are my opinions only and do not necessarily reflect those of this radio station, its staff management, or our underwriters. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com, where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. I hold California Insurance License OL34249 and am a Medicare-approved agent in the state of California. My contact information is news at moneymanagementradio.com. My name is Mark Cunaberti. Thanks for listening. And that's our newscast for this evening. Would you like to hear it again? You can do so at our webpage, kvmr.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned. Food Sleuth is next, followed by Democracy Now! at 7 p.m. I'm Claudio Mendonça. Have a good evening. Ha <laughs> ha